is Angela, and this is the Homestead Education Podcast, where we talk all things homesteading, and we want to share our passion and experience for this lifestyle with you. Hello, everyone. Thank you so much for tuning in to this special edition, sort of breaking news alert type case of... uh, of this episode for homes education. Um, we finished recording season two. And if you've listened to it already, thank you. We did not plan to record anything, another episode, another season for a while yet, because it is busy season. Mandy and I both are here today with a friend and we are seizing the opportunity to share some education when it comes to the recent avian flu outbreak here in 2022, uh, it's starting to gain some traction and more visibility in the news as it's beginning to affect both backyard and commercial flocks. Kirsten, our guest here from Hostel Valley Living is a good friend of mine. We have uh, shared her works before, I think in some of our show notes about raising geese. And she is an author. You can check out her work and check her out on Instagram at Hostel Valley Living. The reason that Kirsten is joining us today is because she had to live the nightmare of going through the avian flu and culling her flock just a couple of days ago. Kirsten, thank you for being here. I know the wounds are fresh. And so if at any point in time you need a break, you don't feel like answering the questions, we fully appreciate and respect that. And we can end at any time if needed. But the fact that you are here and willing to share your experience in the name of education and trying to help other homesteaders and farmers get ahead of this and, and learn about it is so powerful. And we are so grateful. So thank you for being here. Yeah, no, thank you. Thank you for having me. It is definitely difficult to talk about this, especially so recently, but I think it's important too. And I hope that this will be helpful for people. Yeah, totally. I mean, absolutely. We we talked before we even started recording, as we always do, um, just kind of how we we want to sit here today, us three, and kind of shed all of the, I guess, taboo, for lack of a better word, or just the, um, you know, all of the things that we can read on the internet, right? We have, we have a whole conversation podcast on, on internet reading, but... Um, you know, to actually bring real life, um, very fresh, like Angela said, situation to everybody and kind of get a real life experience from a familiar face. Yeah. When I first started noticing dead birds, which was, I think it was last Thursday that I like it was like three birds at once. So I knew something was wrong. And so I started Googling and there was not any information really for what to do once you noticed avian flu in your flock. It was all biosecurity preventative measures, which is helpful, but also it wasn't, you know, what I was looking for at that point. I knew I had a problem. And beyond that, it was like, here's the number for the USDA with not much on what happens when they come. And the little bit that there was on what happens when they come was kind of dramatic sounding like there was one woman who said um she wasn't going to be allowed in her barn for 150 days and now that i now i know what that meant was like in 
the actual coop space. She can do whatever she wants in like the rest of her property or like in our barn where our geese had a stall. We just don't really want to, you're discouraged from going in the stall. You're allowed to if you <laughs> need to. And it's just that stall. It's not the whole barn. So there was like a lot of things I read that almost discouraged me from calling because it was dramatized. So hopefully I can share what the real experience is like. So I think it's important for folks who might be listening who are not on Instagram, who are not familiar with your work. Let's just paint the picture and we're going to start from square one and walk through all of it as much as you're comfortable with. Tell me about your flock. You're in Maine. You do some permaculture practices on your farm. You are passionate about geese. You have guineas, chickens, ducks. How many birds are we talking? Where are they living? Tell us all the good stuff. We had uh, a little over 50 birds. Um, we first started, we got geese and chickens in 2013 when we were living at our previous house. And um, they just, you know, expanded as birds do. <laughs> and we moved here, which is in Liberty, Maine in 2016, spring of 2016. And over the course of like, until, until this happened, um, our flock grew to about 60 strong. Um, we had 22 geese. Um, and then we had several chickens, uh, guineas, and a flock of ducks. And um, we used them certainly for eggs was a big thing. We used our guineas and our ducks a lot for pest control. Guineas in particular, ticks are really bad in Maine right now or for a while now. <laughs> and so uh, guineas were part of combating that. And then the geese were just a huge part of uh, basically like my identity as like a farmer or a homesteader. Um, we use them for eggs. We use them for guarding our other poultry and our property, like as alarm bells. I had written my first book on geese, which is called the modern homesteaders guide to keeping geese and was all about how to keep and raise geese on, on a homestead. Um, and a lot of articles about them, taught classes on them. Basically, um, I loved geese and I, I still do love geese, of course, but um, I love geese and I really wanted to share that love and encourage people to get geese and like, you know, and not have them be overlooked or just feared because they can be um, construed as aggressive. So I um, wanted to share all my experiences with geese and I really leaned into that. Um, our geese even were, um, you know, part of a book on heritage breed geese. There's pictures of our, our geese. Um, and they were, uh, there was an article written about our farm last year, even that was called uh, Living the Goose Life, which was a take on living the good life, the old nearing book on homesteading. So uh, long story short, geese were a big part of the identity here. And um, yeah, that was, that was where we were when this happened. So if you won't, don't mind, what happened? Um, I first heard about avian flu. I think the first case in Maine was towards the end of February. And a couple people like forwarded me the article and stuff. So I was aware that it was happening. Um, I had like in previous years, I'd heard about avian flu before, so I wasn't super concerned right away, um, just because we'd always always weathered it before. Um, we did have a pond, or we still have the pond, so we do have a pond um, that we put in 
not last summer, but the summer before. And that had really made a difference for us in how many migratory waterfowl we saw. So it went from, you know, you get a few ducks flying over or whatever, but not much to being like, you know, a hundred ducks one day would show up. And I knew that that was a problem, but I didn't quite like, and I still don't know how to like keep the ducks from stopping at our pond at all. Um, so, you know, I kind of shoo them off and things like that, but there was definitely interaction between our birds, particularly our waterfowl mm -hmm. and these ducks. And then last week, I think I found like one bird early last week that I assumed was just old. Um, and then another bird and I was like, something might be going on here. And then the next morning I go out and there's three dead birds. At this point, it's all chickens or chickens and guineas. Um, and that was when I was like, I think maybe I should call the state or like, like what happens now? <laughs> I need to call someone to like figure out what happens next and get these guys tested. And I think this might be avian flu. Um, if I can interject real quick, yeah. Kirsten, are they, are the guineas and the chickens, were they sharing a living space at the time? So our guineas and chickens stay in a coop um, by themselves, but they free range during the day with the other fowl. Mm -hmm. And the geese have a stall in the barn that they go into at night, but they also free range during the day. Everybody mixes during the day. The ducks are the uh, most difficult part of this equation in terms of spread because the ducks technically are supposed to stay with the geese but they love swimming so much they swim into the middle of the pond in the evening I can't put them in they just overnight in the pond and then they go hang out with the geese all day so that was definitely like the the biggest um challenge yeah yeah challenge <laughs> um and so I'm starting to research things and stuff and um it's somewhat hard to find real information. I'm also looking up like symptoms, which I think was an interesting thing. Unfortunately, with chickens and also in my experience with guinea fowl, essentially they just drop dead. Like you don't really, you might notice them being a bit lethargic, but really they just are fine and then they're dead. So that's was very like, I well, didn't know if, I, <laughs> you know, it was just an old bird or what was going on. Um, ducks don't really display symptoms, but I actually noticed one of my ducks sneezing a lot. Just and one. Just, just one. one. Yeah. But that was like a, like, okay, like, you know, dead birds and then somebody sneezing, like it was definitely red flag. Um, and then finally, the geese didn't start displaying symptoms and for a while, but when they did, they would get lethargic for sure, sneeze, and then their heads swell. So their heads would swell up so like their eyes were swollen shut. Um, and they would stay like that. This was the worst part. They would stay like that for a couple days and then generally pass. A few of them I would recover, but they would definitely like get sick, be sick, and then pass, which I guess is somewhat helpful in diagnosing, but was also like by far the most traumatic. Hard to watch. Yeah. I want to, I want to um, back up a little bit and just, so, and just kind of maybe explain like a little bit about avian influenza for people that might not even, I mean, this is, I mean, I hate to say the word helpful, but it's very helpful and very tragic to even hear 
um, you kind of describe all of this. Um, so avian influenza, like you, like you mentioned, it's, I mean, it, it comes around all the time, right? I mean, like it's here, we have years, I think what it was 2015 when it was our last year, um, that we saw like a major outbreak in the United States. Um, and so it's a virus. Uh, we all know about viruses, but avian influenza, is caused by uh, type A influenza, and it can impact or infect all types of poultry. So as Kirsten's saying, uh, they raise like everything, right? And so we typically see it a lot, um, like she was mentioning, uh, with our migratory wild birds, typically waterfowl. And so that's why it becomes such a hard thing for all of us as, you know, homesteaders, caretakers, farmers to manage because it becomes a fine line, in my opinion, of, you know, uh, doing your normal practices and letting your birds kind of live their life and, you know, doing your absolute best. And you're trying to combat things that are completely out of your control. I mean, it, that we deal with this kind of stuff all the time, like in the garden and with, with everything. Right. Um, and so the, there's low and high pathogenic, um, strains. They obviously can migrate viruses, migrate or not migrate, <laughs> migrate. That's funny. Cause we're talking about my migratory birds. Mm-hmm. Um, but they, um, they, what, go ahead. Mutate. Yep. That's the word I'm looking for. Yep. So they, the low pathogenic strain can mutate into the high pathogenic strain, which is typically probably what a lot of folks are actually seeing. I've been reading a lot about this because yeah, I mean, it's very, we're in the Midwest and our, our closest case was about a hundred miles away. Angela and I were actually talking about this before we got on to record. And, you know, I'm sure even before this happened to you, people were probably asking, what are you doing? What should I be doing? And I just kind of wanted to back up and kind of explain a little bit uh, that it is just, it's a, it's a virus caused by influenza type A and uh, it can happen every year. So the virus will change, which is why we're seeing such a bad outbreak this year. Um, Also in reading a lot of uh, detailed articles. I mean, these types of outbreaks can last for anywhere from like four to six months, depending on where you are in, in the region of the United States. So I think that we started to hear about it. You said in February in your area, I think the, I think in late January was like the first case that was documented. Um, and now we're seeing, I mean, you can even, I don't, now you're seeing like commercial, major poultry operations having to wipe out, you know, all, if not several of their flocks because of this. So, um, okay. You- At the end, I do want to make sure we talk about how this relates to the first very popular and memorable bout of H1N1. Yeah. And we will talk about what that means for you in your kitchen with your eggs and your chicken and whatever you're cooking and eating and that sort of thing. But I do want to save that for the end, if that's okay. But don't freak out. Just a little bit of foreshadowing. This is not, this is not, not zoonotic yet. This is right now it's mainly in birds and sure. It poses a health risk for homesteaders and people, farmers, uh, commercial poultry operators who are inundated with interaction of of birds all day, every day, right? 
But right now, this is something that's largely bird based. And so we are, you don't need to be, no one needs to freak out. Right now, this is not the next coronavirus. Okay. Right. <laughs> we're good. And, and I know that we're here to kind of talk about Kirsten's personal experience and we're gonna we're gonna jump right back to that. But I also would I feel like be remiss if we didn't even and we can talk about this, we can continue on with what you were seeing and everything like that, but the um massive agriculture impacts that this is having on food supply and food chain and how we are getting our chicks and replacing our flocks and um, the cost of things at the store. And I mean, a lot of, there are several things that are playing part in that, but as this outbreak um, continues to get worse, because, and I do think it's going to get worse across the United States before it gets any better. Um, it's going to have, I mean, it, it is, it's having some, some drastic impacts on, I mean, our economy for a lack of better, you know, explanation. So you want to jump back into, okay. So you started to notice, um, some dead birds and, uh, there weren't a ton of resources and you were like, what do I do? So what did you do next? So I did, um, eventually call, uh, the USDA, um, and our, our local, chapter, which then sent out, I had a long phone call with like the state of Maine vet, um, which was extremely helpful. And I mean, she not only like set up the appointment and did the sort of bureaucracy behind um, getting this all tested and everything figured out what's going on, but she was incredibly helpful just to easing my mind as well of like, cause my very first concern was because the geese live next to the goats and the sheep. Mm -hmm. I like do I what if this affects my goats and my sheep and then it's the whole farm and like so I was very worried about that and she said that that shouldn't be an issue which was very good to hear um they then sent someone out to do testing so they do testing it's very similar to a COVID test it's a little swab um and they tested a couple of my deceased birds and a couple of my sick birds the geese that were showing all those symptoms um and then you wait a day for the test results came back positive positive. Um, and then they come out and the process for anyone that this does happen to is they use a, a carbon monoxide chamber to cull um, your flock, which they found to be the most humane methods. Um, that was something we were like kind of worried and thinking about was like somebody going to be chasing our birds all over the farm, like with a gun or something. Um, so it was yeah. like, I think they found a good, a good balance of how to do that in a way that I felt okay with. Um, so they come out, they depopulate your flock, they take all of the birds, um, and then they, um, clean up after themselves. Uh, then they ask you not to go in your coop for, or not to clean your coop out for three or four weeks because the virus stays alive without a host for that long. So you don't want to you know, have the dust get up, get on your clothes, all that kind of thing. And then a quarantine of 150 days for poultry. Um, you can't get new birds for 150 days. Uh, you also can't like take your uh, muck shovel or your feed buckets off your farm for 150 days as a precaution. Um, and that, that, that was the process. <laughs> um, yeah. So I appreciate, and I notice you're very um, pragmatic when explaining all of this, right? It's very procedural. Yeah. 
<laughs> try, try. Yeah. I hope yeah. that's helpful. <laughs> but I, I, I do. And if you prefer not to get into it, that's fine. But as homesteaders, we can't help but emotionally be attached to our yeah. charges. I assume you had a lot of fear, a lot of panic. Um, you said that before that you had called the USDA, you kind of had a sense like, oh, something's happening. And then it was, I think this is the avian flu. When that was confirmed for you, were you at a point where your birds were suffering? And so you were kind of, yes, let's take the next step. Or was there a lot, do you know what I'm saying? Was there a lot of dread and frustration? What are you, what are you feeling? It was, it was, it was mixed. Um, there were several birds who were clearly suffering. And for that reason, I was, by the time, bear with me one moment, I'm going to pick up my dog. Kirsten has a puppy. She's been trying to entertain with one arm during this very passionate discussion here. And she's doing a wonderful job of multitasking. Yeah. Um, here, caper, caper, come here. We um, all have seen him on. Look, okay, you all. I'm not editing this out, and you can't see this sweet, sweet puppy. But I wish you could because it would make this whole situation kind of feel better for everybody. <laughs> yes. yes, he has been definitely helpful for my feeling better too. But, anyways, um, all right, boys, that's enough. Um, <laughs> So, yes, emotional impact of this whole thing. By the time the USDA came, there were enough sick birds that it was a little bit of a relief and it was a bit of putting them out of their misery, especially because, um, like, having to deal with even if, like, you know, one or two dead birds every time I went out to do chores was getting to be a lot um that said it also was there were a few birds and especially the ducks who never showed any symptoms didn't seem to be sick at all and we did have like a emotional time with like gosh we'd love to be able to keep those birds like they seem fine um and the fact is that they are carriers so for a indeterminate but extensive period of time possibly the rest of their lives they're going to carry this virus and so if we had thought we could squirrel one away and keep it or something that would mean we could never get any other poultry because they would infect them they would infect any wild birds that stopped at our farm and then pass that on to who knows who else and anybody who like has poultry who visited our farm and then went home to their poultry and all of that so once we really you know, the facts of it were clear that that was something that had to be done, but that was the hardest part was culling the birds that seemed like they were fine. Yeah. So I think one question a lot of people have is, okay, so if my birds get it, do I have to cull them? And at this point, there doesn't seem to be a treatment or a vaccination. Is that true? Correct. So there is not a treatment and you do have to call your flock. Um, That is part of definitely why I personally, at least like recommend calling the state. I mean, there's many reasons that's definitely what you should do, but uh, the fact that they will come and do this for you, I think is uh, helpful. Um, 
In terms of a vaccine, I have heard a few different things. I think there's definitely ones in the works, but it's, um, I personally don't know exactly what the vaccine status is. And I do know that it's not readily available if there is anything out there at this point. And that would be, that would be tough because I imagine it would be like if we were to order, and I don't want to speculate either. I haven't done much research on that development, but I imagine it would be something like when we would order poultry from a hatchery. So, you know, it wouldn't be as readily available as like, for example, if I were to ship you goslings, right? Like I probably won't have access to that vaccine. So I think that it's just kind of another little piece of the puzzle that, that, um, you know, just in talking about this real life experience, hopefully it might help um, in the future, because I do truly believe that we will be dealing with this mm-hmm. again. Yeah. Yeah. And I believe that as well. Yes. Yeah. So I'm just thinking because like I was saying before, because of the emotional piece and obviously there's a monetary aspect to it as well. Mm-hmm. You, and, and all, there's a, everything is always a controversy, you know, right. There's always a two sides to every, every viewpoint perspective, but you know, there's people saying, well, I just would never call my flock. And it, the, the point that I think needs to be driven home a little bit is it's not just about your flock, right? Yes. It's, yeah. it's your flock might be the immediate situation, but it's about coming into contact with migratory and wild birds. It's about people visiting your farm, the ability for you to wear your boots at other people's farms. It's about bringing in new fowl and understanding what's going to happen to the new fowl. Mm-hmm. Are you willing to give up getting chicks? Are you willing to completely isolate your flock? And what does that mean for their lifestyle and their health? And so it really just becomes bigger than you. Yes. Yeah. Going to the feed store. I mean, like all these things where you, where you would not necessarily, um, mingle, uh, closely with other, um, folks that did the same, you know, had the same lifestyle as we do. Um, but you, you are, I mean, I think that we are definitely not going to get into it, but it's kind of the same situation as we've all kind of been living in the past, you know, several years. It's, uh, and I, obviously I fully agree with both of you. It is, a situation and Angela, you're right. You know, a lot of people, there's the, you know, the, the money, the emotions, and it's like, do I have to do this? Are you sure they're not all sick? And like, can I try and save them? Can we give them antibiotics or whatever it is? And, you know, honestly, my, my opinion stands with both of you and it's, yes, you have to call all of them as difficult as it is. And I think we've listened to, um, I mean, this real situation and, and can kind of grasp and picture how terrible it truly was. So they take, they remove the birds. They're, they've, they're gone. They've cleaned up. And now it's damage control at this point on the farm. At this point, it's okay. Stay out of your coop spaces for how long did you say? It's three weeks for cleaning and like, yeah, tidying up, Okay. The, you know, anything that would sort of make dust and stuff fly around. You just want, yeah. literally you want the dust to settle. Yeah. yeah. And then, <laughs> and then we're waiting 150 days because that is how long it will take the virus to die without a host. Correct. I believe that 
so I've heard different things on how long the virus will live without a host. I think they've set it at 150 days because that's like the longest that they would be worried about, basically. So it's possible it's less than that, but it's, you know, they're certain at 150. So even if you had collected hatching eggs prior to this, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. you can hatch them out. But are you really going to want to release them into your coop spaces? Probably not, right? Because right. of all of the things that we've talked about already. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. Tell me about what your plans are now going forward. Yeah. So I think a big part of how this came to our farm was like, I would have been more capable of protecting my birds. Although there are some things that it's hard to protect them against, but I would have been able to at least take more mitigation steps with a smaller flock. So I want to take the opportunity to, yes, bring poultry back to my farm, but not in the numbers that I had before and sort of a more uh, focused, I guess, poultry program. So going forward, I hope to have like four or five geese. Um, One thing I want to do, although I haven't determined which breed and that's going to be so, so hard. (laughs) But I'd like to keep them all the same breed so that if we do have hatching eggs and stuff, you know, that's sort of an option for me. They're not all all mixed breeds, Um, but I don't know what breed yet. But have them in a small group and maybe have a couple chickens or a couple ducks to complement them. Maybe a couple guineas too that, you know, we haven't haven't completely talked that out, but it's basically – bringing them back, but in smaller numbers. And those smaller numbers are going to allow us to, if we have to keep them inside, do so in a more, like a way that I'm comfortable with where they aren't going to be all beating each other up. Um, Or maybe I can even separate them like bird by bird if I have to. Um, And also few enough birds that I can build a run space for them if I need to, because right now my birds are either cooped or free range. So if I have a run space, I can put them in during the spring migration and possibly even cover that and things like that. So a lot of like little steps that we're taking to do our best to make sure this doesn't happen to us again. And that is actually kind of the plus of like, they say 150 days, we're going to just wait till next spring. Cause I think that makes sense. And the benefit of that for me is just being able to really think out and make plans that hopefully will allow me to be as safe as possible. Because I think it's important for people to know in the background, you know, I'll be follow you on Instagram. You had shared, you were answering questions. You're open to educating and you had shared that, when you heard about this virus spreading in your state, you took pains to try locking up your birds. And so it's not that you weren't just ignoring it. You actually did try initially. And what happened? Yeah, with 22 geese, the problem is that migration season and goose mating season are the same time of year. So geese are always... um pretty feisty birds and hard to keep inside. I think they're harder. Like my chickens, if I shut them in, they just all roost and they don't really care, (laughs) but my geese don't like it. Um, But in particular during mating season, which is like February through May or June, all of the males are fighting all the other males for the females and the females are trying to sit on nests and they're fighting off everybody else from around their nests. And they're basically just beating each other up the whole time if they're enclosed. Um, And especially with the numbers that we had, that's just, it's just too many 
too many hormones at once in a small place. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it makes sense. It's, it's what we kind of talk about with everything, just going back to just the, the basic trying to do what is best, you know, it's not all you want. I mean, like I want 50 geese. It's not, it's not feasible because of these types of real life situations. And then just making sure that you can give them the, you know, the best life that that's possible. And I mean, geese are sassy. So, I mean, they're, that's, not that you didn't try and it's not it's it's hard it's it's hard for all of us to you know year after year we just kind of like have our normal routine and they go outside and whatever and we don't actually deal with this this impact and then all of a sudden it's like oh my gosh it's right at my doorstep and what do we do and it's really hard to make those major changes yeah, and that's something um, I mentioned it a little bit in my Instagram post, but my husband and I have been talking about it a lot of like, it just seems like the, the the whole reason that this property was perfect for the geese and like we loved having them here and we let them free range is like, that is kind of where they belong. So it's that balance of like having the goose live its best goose life mm -hmm. versus living a safe goose life. Yeah. Yeah. Um. So I did say that we were going to touch on this. You can certainly read more from, you know, the CDC, the USDA. Go visit, uh, I believe it's aphis.usda.gov, aphis, A-P-H-I-S dot USDA.gov. And that website is going to give you all the different, all the information. Symptoms for your birds, symptoms for humans. If you want to start watching out for that, if you have a concern there, uh, you can eat eggs from infected birds. You can eat chicken or meat from infected birds, so long as it's properly cooked and and that sort of thing. Same precautions as you would take anytime you're mm -hmm. you're eating from poultry. Um, I do think we should talk real quick just about symptoms to watch for. Kirsten touched on that a little bit. Um, randomly dead birds that seemed healthy one second and then the next you go out to your coop or your run and they're just not alive anymore um we're looking at the swelling of the head uh as kirsten saw with her geese sneezing is one of them uh, a purple color to the comb and or the feet waddles perhaps um Mandy, you're the vet tech here. What else am I missing? <laughs> well, I think it's a lot. I think it's hard too because we see it's like a lot of respiratory um, signs. But we see respite. I mean, if you look up, if you look in any type of um, book or anything, um, in Kirsten's book that she published, I mean, it talks about it. Literally talks about all the, you know, the the things, the impacts, of diseases that we can see in types of poultry or geese or you know whatever flock we're talking about. And a lot of them have the same signs. So you're like, is this mycoplasma is, you know, like, it's like what, you know, so it's, it's that the resource for the website can also help track, which is another reason why it is so important to, if you truly do think that this is in your flock, um, we are, we know it's, I mean, it's so hard to even say it out loud, probably, I'm sure it was very hard for you to be like, oh my gosh, my birds have avian flu. You know, we talked about it at the very beginning. It's not taboo. Don't even, eat, don't even go there you all. But, um, 
if you, it helps everybody else because you, it, the website will track cases near you. And so you can try and um, say it's, there's several of them, several hundred miles away or something, and maybe it's inching closer, um, you know, and so it, it helps keep track of it across the country. It will also show all of those signs and stuff like that. So if you go on and, you know, you have a deceased bird and you're like, what is this? I don't know, you know, cause it, most of us, if we find a bird that has died, we're not going to automatically typically jump to avian flu. You could go on this website. You can see, Hey, are there any cases anywhere near me? And if there are not, then it might be something else. If there are, it should be the highest thing on your list. And the website also lets you track wild bird cases, which I think can be a good, like, you know, you, maybe there aren't any domestic flocks yet, but if you have wild birds, um, spreading it. Around. A lot of snow geese right now are migrating across the country and they are very prevalent in, um, in spreading it. Yeah. So you've heard from Kirsten um, who's, ha- Oh, sorry, Kirsten, go ahead. Oh, I, I was just going to throw in on your point about like, uh, spreading it to humans and if you can eat the eggs and, and all that kind of thing. Um, yes, you can, as long as you properly prepare meat or eggs, I personally wouldn't but you can. Um, and especially if you like get an avian flu diagnosis and you're like, shoot, I ate eggs yesterday. You're probably fine. Um, I did that. Nobody told me to do this, but I made sure, um, to wear a mask, which I have plenty of (laughs) (laughs) to wear a mask and gloves whenever I went in the coop and double bag in plastic bags, any dead birds. And that just helps protect you. And then the double bagging is helping protect anything else on your farm too. We've heard from Kirsten and how she had to deal with this happening, but I think it's, an ounce of prevention in this case is worth a pound of cure. So Mandy, as somebody who knock on wood doesn't have it, what are you doing to protect your birds? Yeah. So we actually talked about this. I don't know, a month or so ago, there was a case in Iowa. We're not too, I mean, we're about two hours from the Iowa border, but that's not very far. If you think about miles and migratory birds, Um, I mean, we basically had a plan of where we would, where we would move the geese, they would go in the barn and, um, the coop is big enough, thankfully that we got rid of a lot of chickens, not very long ago, they would just stay in there and, um, the ducks would go in a separate stall in the barn. So it's absolutely not ideal, right? It's just not same situation with you. It would be very hard to keep them in that um, it would be very, very difficult to keep them like that for an extended period of time. Um, I would, I would verge, you know, uh, on saying impossible, um, for their sanity, our sanity. Um, we do have a run that we can lock and keep them in, um, with some significant big trees overhead. So that makes me feel a little bit better. Um, but it's just, it is, it, like you said, it's, it's just plan. Just if, if nothing else to anybody who's listening, this likely won't happen to you. Right. I mean, chances are not very great that you, 
everybody listening is going to be impacted or even know somebody who's impacted. Um, but, uh, it could. So in listening, kind of just think about what would you do if, if, um, a flock down the road, um, got it. I would, I mean, you would have to take precautions and keep your birds under shelter. Um, yeah, I mean, there, there's, there's really no other option, right? I mean, there's, there's not another choice. You can't just limit the amount of outside time, only let them out for an hour a day or something like that. You know, the smart choice would be to keep them under, under shelter. And for a lot of us, just given our, our setups and just our daily routines, a lot of us, it's not feasible. So this might be some type of a wake up call, if you will, to maybe try and just have a game plan. Um, just because what if I learned from doing the paperwork with the USDA that like, if you have a commercial flock, Mm -hmm. um, uh, you have to have like a, a biosecurity plan that you like share with them. And I think that's a good, like, yeah, just, that's a good idea. If you have a flock of any kind, just have something, some sort of plan in place for what you do. Yeah. It's the same for all types of animals that we have. You know, if you were to bring home a goat or whatever, or for some reason your goat got CL, you would, I mean, like in, in wanting to keep the rest of your herd safe, you would keep them separate or some people even cult them if that is the right decision. I mean, so, uh, tough choices that we have to make. That's all there is to it. It's just, I mean, it's, it's hard. Yeah. Yeah. So here on our homestead, we have a waterway that, um, we don't see a lot of, we only see heron, but we don't see a lot of geese or anything. This is a stream. It's, you know, I've always kind of taken comfort. It's moving water. Right. But then it dawned on me the other day, well, there's a pond, a couple, a couple homes over that connects to the stream. Mm-hmm. And there's birds there. Uh, so we have we have put our biosecurity plan into place. The birds are not allowed in the water. Uh, yesterday they got their last hurrah. Then they took advantage of it because they went down to the local highway. So that just kind of <laughs> put the nail in the coffin for me that this we're done. So um, today they're enclosed as we take one of our pastures and um, we run poultry wire around the entire pasture which is fine it was on the list anyway because with rotational grazing and permaculture I wanted the birds to be enclosed in pasture spaces anyway it just Mm -hmm. bumped it up the list so um they're going nuts they're angry they're in the coop right now they have an attached outdoor run and I can hear them yelling from in the house but it's not going to happen and they will now stay in pastures and rotate through pastures and they will use pools so we personally have made the choice that there is no more natural water access until this passes and there's the extremist, I, well, I shouldn't say it sounds extreme, but it isn't. They can get this from birds flying overhead and dropping feces in your spaces. It, that is one of the ways that it is spread and it sucks. But we also have to balance a lot of us homesteaders. The reason we do this is because we like living in connection with nature and with the animals. We cannot make our lifestyle choices suffer. We don't want to take away quality of life from mm-hmm. them at the risk of trying to avoid every single strain of bacteria, it's within reason. And it's okay if folks out there disagree with that. I think we're going to take precautions and steps personally to mitigate the risk. We're going to try to reduce it, but I'm not going to not let my birds outside. And that goes with what you were saying before. 
Mandy. We're just going to reduce exposure, but I I will not take away their ability to be birds, right? It's kind of just pros and cons. I mean, I think that we wanted to do this so that we could, I mean, really kind of just bring this to everybody's attention. If you don't follow Kirsten on social media, you should. And also there's a lot of good information that's been shared in the past 24 hours about um, what they had to do. And um, we, I mean, truthfully, I am so deeply sorry that this happened to you. I mean, I, I remember seeing it and I was just shocked. I think I texted Angela right away and I was like, oh my God, like, it's hard to, I mean, I know that like, um, obviously I'm not, I don't live under a rock. I know that this is happening across the country. I think it's just kind of, it hits a little bit more home when it's, when it's somebody that you, you know, know and, uh, and associate with and, and have relations with. And so, um, I appreciate you taking some time out of your morning and coming on here and, and sharing your very real experience. And like we said in the beginning, and hopefully this is just helpful for anybody who's curious or concerned. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no, I'm happy to share. And I appreciated, you know, when I did share online, um, getting so many great questions and stuff, yeah. I, you know, want, want to be able to, to help people, hopefully mitigate it. Like you said, it's very much like just a balance of, of what you're comfortable with for your bird's happiness versus. Sure. Yeah. But um, yeah, hopefully this is helpful for a lot of people. Is there anything that you want to share that we didn't touch on that you would want to close on? Um, It's not necessarily what I need to close on, but I did think (laughs) talking about like encouraging people to contact the USDA Mm -hmm. and not just sweep this under the rug. It is also worth noting, it sounds like a little weird or whatever, but they do offer indemnity for your flock. Mm So, I mean, if you're a commercial flock, I think that's, you know, life-saving. But if that, even that little gesture can be enough to encourage somebody to actually call them, um, hopefully. Hopefully that <laughs> and I didn't know that. So that's yeah. really great information. And I'm, I mean, I mean, truthfully, it's, this is a situation where, I mean, they, they want to help, they want to make it, they want to make sure that everybody is taken care of. So that's good. I mean, that's really nice to hear. I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we can't thank you enough for being here. I know the wounds are still fresh. I will greatly miss seeing Rupert and Petunia on your feed, <laughs> as I'm sure you obviously <laughs> miss them dearly at your farm. Um, let us know if there's anything we can do for you. Absolutely. No, one of the nicest, sweetest, like most moving things about sharing is people like really realizing how many people actually know my goose's names. Yeah. And it's like, yeah. it's like, wow. <laughs> so, um, at least, you know, they had a, they had a big reach for little. Absolutely. Geese. They did. And their loss will not be for nothing. They mm-hmm. will, they are, their legacy is helping to educate and hopefully save and prevent some bird flu. Uh, casualties. So thank you for your time and for being here today. We really, really, really do appreciate it. Yep. Thank you. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of the Homestead Education Podcast. Any relevant material will be put in the show notes. We hope you'll share our episodes and also click that subscribe button. For more information about this podcast, you can visit us on Instagram at Homestead Education Podcast. Angela can be found online at axandroothomestead.com 
and on Instagram at Axe and Root Homestead. Mandy can also be found online at thefarmermandy.com and on Instagram at Wild Oak Farms. We'll see you next time.